0: Amen. You can be seated. I had a really cool conversation through Facebook Messenger recently. I'm sure some of you guys have those sometimes. It got interesting. There's someone who used to go to church here but moved across the country and just was wrestling through some life questions. He kind of got right to it with, with no introduction. He said, how can you believe in something that can't be seen? Really good question, right? He said, people keep telling me about Hebrews 11.1, about faith being certainty and all that, but how? How do you know heaven is real if you can't see it? How do you know the Bible is authentic in in what it tells us? I told him, really good question, because I have wrestled with that at points in my life myself. How many of you? Maybe, Maybe you're there today. We, we all go through the, those questions. So I told him about a book that helped me at one point in my journey like that. Philip Yancey wrote a wonderful book called Reaching for the Invisible God about that very thing. How do we have a relationship with someone we can't see with our eyes? And he brought it back around to that faith perspective, but I appreciated his honesty. Hey, at least he admitted he, he wrestled with that. I wasn't alone. But I also went on to tell this guy, hey, I, I've never seen my brain, but I believe I have one, it, and not only because I've read about them and seen pictures about them, like I, I have thoughts, and I will my finger to move, and it, and it moves, and I believe there's a brain in there, even though I've never seen it. I, I told him about Billy Graham's old analogy about the, the wind. Remember that? you never seen the wind. But you've seen the effects of the wind, and and so you believe it's there, right? And so I wanted to explain that subjective side of my walk with God. There are things that have happened in my life, maybe in yours too, that I cannot explain any other way besides the fact that there's a loving God who's in control working in my circumstances. There's that subjective side, but... There's also that objective reality to the Christian faith. It's not only subjective. It's it's founded on history, right? I told him, I've never seen Julius Caesar or George Washington either. But I believe that they are re- were real human beings on this planet, right? And it's been shown time and time again that when you look at manuscripts, the amount of them, the closeness to when something was originally written, the manuscripts of the Bible far outweigh the manuscripts of other histories that we take for granted. I told him about a book that helped me with that, Seven Reasons You Can Trust the Bible by Erwin Lutzer. That's a wonderful one if you've ever wrestled with that question. I told him about More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. There's this objective basis to the Christian faith. And then he asked another really good question. He was full of them. He said, okay, so I've never struggled to believe in Abraham Lincoln, even though I've never seen him. So why is it so hard for me to believe in God right now? I pondered that one for a while. And when I got back with him, I said, listen, friend, I believe a big part of it is spiritual warfare. Satan is an enemy of your soul who does not care a whole lot if you believe Abraham Lincoln existed, but he cares very much about you not believing in God. In fact, Paul calls him the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers and I believe even works in the hearts of believers to to sow seeds of doubt. Sometimes when, when we wrestle with questions in life, we We need to have that intellectual discussion because we are to love God with all of our mind, right? That's an important part of the faith. Sometimes when we're wrestling through something, I think we need something different. I I think of the old story. You probably heard it about the little boy. He can't sleep. He's afraid of the boogeyman, the, the monster under the bed. So he calls mom down and mom sits with him for a minute and then she gets up to leave and and, and she says, it's okay, son, Jesus is with you. And he says, I know, but I need somebody with skin on. <laughs> now, if you have your theology right, you know Jesus does have skin on even today. The God-man sits at the right hand of the Father as our representative, but you also know what he was saying. Mom, I believe Jesus is here, but it would help if you stayed and showed me his love, because you got skin on that I can see. That's what we're gonna talk about today, about showing people Jesus with skin on by the way we as believers live our lives. Okay, you you remember in Philippians chapter two, we've looked at the example of Jesus himself, and, and then we've looked at Paul's sacrifice on behalf of the Philippians, but today we're gonna meet two other guys, first century Christians, One of whom you might name a son after, the other you probably will not. We're going to meet Timothy and Epaphroditus. If there's any Epaphrodituses in the room, I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) You may not want to name your son that, but you would love for your son to walk in his footsteps. We're going to look at the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. If they were first century Christians, there are a lot of 21st century Christians in this room. They are our forebears, and we are called to follow their example. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 2, 19. We're going to start with Timothy, and I'm going to sum Timothy up in one line. As he lives out what Paul's been talking about, unity and humility, I'm going to sum Timothy up as a guy who was concerned for their welfare. He cared about the welfare of the Philippian church what they needed, and how he could be a part of meeting that need. Okay, verse 19. Paul says to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Why Why? Why would he have to send Timothy? Because Paul's under house arrest, remember? He says, I hope to send Timothy to you, so he can bring news back of how you guys are doing. Right away you say, well, who was this Timothy? And... Maybe you know, maybe you don't. So I want to walk through it a little bit. Timothy first encountered Paul the Apostle when Timothy was a little boy in the area of Lystra and Derbe. Acts chapter 14, 19, and 20 tells what happened there. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They stoned him, leave him for dead. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Can you imagine the impression that made when that story got to a little boy named Timothy? They stoned this guy and left him for dead, and instead of hightailing it out of there, he went right back in to the same city. Little boy wondering, why does he have that kind of boldness? Why does he have that kind of fearlessness? What is it that he believes in? I'm sure Timothy never forgot that moment. And as God would have it, Paul would come back to where Timothy grew up in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And if you know your Bible, you know that he did. We'll we'll get there a little bit later, but I want to talk to you a little bit more about his upbringing, because it was unique among the disciples. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy later in 2 Timothy 1. Verse five. Did you know First Timothy or Second Timothy are letters to this young man? Later on, Second Timothy one five. Paul says, "I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you, as well." Let me ask you a question. Why did it not mention his father there? Because his father did not share that faith. His father was not a believer. This is a reminder that God works in all kinds of situations. And I want to talk specifically to the moms and grandmas in the room. Never underestimate the impact you can have on those children God puts under your care whether your spouse shares your faith or not. How did they do it? Well, in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy again, and he's reminded how from childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How was he familiar with the scriptures from the earliest ages? Lois and Eunice poured them in to him. Timothy would grow up to be used mightily of God. Don't underestimate the foundation you can lay mom and grandma in the lives of your children. So, what, what did he grow up to be like? We chose this name because we love the character of this man. Our, our oldest son Jaden, his middle name is Timothy. Jaden Timothy. Listen to the character of Timothy in the Bible. Verse 20. Paul says, I have no one like him. The Greek there says, I have no one else like-minded. It it can really mean like-souled. Paul's saying, Timothy and I are like souls. You got anybody like that in your life that you look at them and say, we're like souls. He says, that's me and Timothy. We're, We're like souls. We care about the same things. We're driven by the same things. We believe the same things. We're in this together. So he's like sold with Paul. He says, someone who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Why? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Obviously, there are other exceptions that Paul knew throughout the New Testament, Luke. But is that not the the vast condition in the world? Most folks are concerned, not with the interests of Christ, but they all seek their own interests. Not Timothy. He was genuinely concerned for the welfare of this Philippian church. The Greek there is naturally concerned for the welfare of the Philippian church. You say, what nature would breed concern for brothers and sisters in Christ? Not the old nature the new nature that Timothy had received when he accepted Christ as his Savior and Lord and the Holy Spirit took up residence. It's natural through the Holy Spirit and the risen Lord that Timothy would be concerned for their welfare. Verse 22, he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. We live in a gun town. The the word there is caliber. You know his caliber. You've seen him at work how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now you're getting into the closeness of that relationship. Paul saw him as a spiritual son. Okay. And indeed, if you read your New Testament, you'll get a taste of the adventures Timothy went on. Among other churches, he helped with the church at Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi. In fact, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to chapter 1, verse 1 when the author of this book of Philippians is written. And who do you see there? Yeah, not just Paul. Paul and Timothy. Timothy co-wrote the letter that we are studying. I believe after this house arrest, Paul was later freed before he went into a more severe arrest that led to his execution. And later on during that, he sent Timothy further letters, Second Timothy from imprisonment and First Timothy, because Timothy was helping to lead a church in the city of Ephesus, and Paul was writing to encourage him. Verse 23, Paul says, I hope therefore to send him, just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, having looked at Timothy's resume, it could be that in this room we're saying, hey, God, God could use a Timothy. Oh, yeah, but, but me? <laughs> Don't we all have some of that in us? Sure, he could use Timothy, but me? Well, I want to share a couple of things that encouraged me when I looked at the life of Timothy. I believe Timothy struggled with fear, with being timid about his faith. Anybody ever wrestle with that? Just honestly, any moment in your life? Listen. How do how do I know that? Why do I believe that? Because Paul talked to him about it so often. Don't live in fear. 2 Timothy 1:7. God gave us a spirit, Timothy, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I believe Timothy was also looked down on by some people. You ever feel like people around you look down on you? You could never God could never use you to to be a light in their lives? Why do I believe that? First Timothy 4.12, Paul says to him, Let no one despise you, let no one look down on you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And I want to talk to the teenagers and on down in this room. Don't let anyone ever look down on you because you're young. Don't think you can't be used as a light or an encouragement in their lives. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. You set the example. If they're not going to do it, you do it. You set the example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. He also had health issues. You ever been in a situation where you feel like, man, I'm wrestling with so many health issues. I don't know if God could use me. Well, 1 Timothy 5.23 Paul tells him, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. So he's having stomach issues, but not just that. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In addition to his stomach, he had other frequent ailments going on. So I look at those three things and I say, hey, God can use Timothy with that stuff going on. Maybe he can use me. He was genuinely interested in in their welfare that leads us to a question for the believers in the room are we genuinely interested in the welfare of others because there's a direct connection between the welfare of others and the interests of Jesus Christ how do i know that verse 20 I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The interests of Jesus Christ are tied in with the welfare of our brothers and our sisters. So what is it that so often gets in the way? Is it that we try to ignore those needs? Maybe sometimes, but maybe not usually what gets in the way? A narrow minded pursuit of our own interests. We get locked in on our own needs, right? And the bottom line here is we only have a certain amount of precious time on this planet. And if we use it all locked in on our very own needs, we're gonna miss out on some opportunities for care to care for those around us. I saw this lived out this week. There's a lady named Edda who just moved down here from the Navajo Nation. She herself is Navajo and has been attending the, the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And she told our prayer meeting group one night that, that those folks at that prayer meeting are her, her only family in the Prescott area. On Sunday, she attends a Navajo church in Winslow. That stuck out to us. And then something happened more recently. This week, she called up and she said, I got a, I got a flat tire and, and I don't know what to do. It's, it's on the side of the road. Can anybody help me? And I called up Bill. And Bill was out in Sedona at the time. And I said, Bill, is there any chance you could help her before she has to get her car after work to get that spare tire on? And Bill said, I'll meet her there. And he met her there and put that spare tire on. And, and she texted me and said, what a huge help that that was how easy it would have been to say, oh, I've got stuff going on. But Bill said, hey, there's someone in need. As a deacon at the church next door, I'm going to go meet that need and show her the love of Christ. I think about this, and I think sometimes maybe it helps us to remember how much God cares about our own welfare. Just think about how much God cares about what you're going through, what I'm going through. Kevin told me about this uh, this week. A lot of us have been praying for Kevin and Johanna. You know that Kevin's mom recently went to be with the Lord. And as happens with that, lots of people show up at the house, and they're often hungry, right? And he, he told me about a day where there were like 50 people there. And the plan was to do pulled pork, and they were getting it ready, and it was just not getting to temperature, and it was taking forever. And there's all these hungry people there. And he said, I just sent up this quick prayer. Lord, help me. They're looking through the cabinets. Here's a can of baked beans. Here's this. We don't have enough to feed 50 people. Help me, Lord. He said five minutes later, his aunt came in carrying platters of sandwiches, She was allergic to pork. She knew they were going to be having pork. And he said she brought in more than enough to feed that whole group of 50 people. He believes, and I believe, God heard that prayer. And he cared about what was going on there, and he intervened. Makes me think about Psalm 113, verse 4. It says, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? who dwells on high. Amen. We could stop there and praise him for that, right? But it doesn't stop there. This this God who dwells on high, listen to what it says in verse 6, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. This God on high humbles himself to care about what's going on down here and not just to care about it, but to do something about it. Verse 7, he raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, and it goes on and on. Where am I going with this? If we're thankful that God humbles himself to care about our welfare, believers, let's pass it on. Let's pass it on, okay? Timothy was concerned with their welfare. Second guy, Epaphroditus. Anybody want to say that with me? You want to say Epaphroditus. That's a fun one. Epaphroditus, I'm gonna sum him up as concerned with keeping relationships connected. He was concerned with connecting. Every group of friends, I'm convinced, has one person that excels at this. They work extra hard at keeping the group connected. One of my groups of friends, uh, we went to school from kindergarten on, it's a guy named Josh. He's the guy orchestrating the connections. Do you know people like that in your sphere? Bottom line here is, is, as we look at Epaphroditus' as example, whether it comes naturally to us like it does to Josh, it's something we're called to as believers, to be connected. Okay, watch Epaphroditus here. Paul writes to the Philippians, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, we're going to do the same thing with him that we did with Timothy. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Well, he's the guy that the church at Philippi sent to Paul in prison with a gift and likely with a letter saying, how you doing, Paul? How do we know this? Philippians 4.18, This same letter, Paul tells the church back there, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So what's this guy like? If if he's an example, what's his character? Well, look at these descriptions in verse 25. Paul calls him my brother. What's that point to? The the relationship, the closeness of relationship. My fellow worker, he's involved in the work. He's a partner in the work with me. Fellow soldier, he's fighting on your behalf and on my behalf in the spiritual battle. Your messenger, he's bringing words of hope. Your minister to my need. He's bringing actions of encouragement. That, that's his character. Why send him back to the church at Philippi? Because Paul wants to give them an update, partially about Epaphroditus' health. How do I know that? Listen to these next verses. But as we read them, I want you to listen to the connecting words. There's relational glue in these verses, Okay. Verse 26, Paul says, Epaphroditus has been longing for you all. He's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. Epaphroditus was sick, and they'd caught wind of it. They're concerned because this is their buddy, right? But Paul says, God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, God spared Epaphroditus from this particular sickness. And they wanted to let the church back there know. Verse 28, Paul says, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. You see the relational glue in those verses, the desire to connect? That is to be part of the Christian life. More character for Epaphroditus, verse 29. He tells the church, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, it's hard to quantify what happened here, but most believe that either on the journey from Philippi to Rome or while he was there working so hard to encourage Paul, he became sick. He became sick. What was his journey like? I looked up the distance between Philippi and Rome, 1,200 miles, 1,200 miles At best on a donkey or horse, at worst on foot. He made the trip, and it affected his health. And Paul says, risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, was this an uncalculated risk on on his part? No. It was totally calculated. Why? Because he knew who he was doing it for. He was doing it for his Lord and his kingdom. He calculated that risk, and he took it. Be faithful to Jesus and and build this connection. Do we have a healthy concern to connect with other brothers and sisters, or have we closed ourselves off? I've seen this at work in life recently. You remember. When I went back to Ohio with my brother for my mama's funeral and we prayed, Lord, use this in the family. We've seen this already starting to happen. I want to show you a picture from the graveside service. It was a cold, snowy day in Ohio. In fact, someone from Arizona just looked at that picture on Facebook. and said, looks cold. It was cold. But these are the six male cousins on that side of the family. The two bookends are brothers. In fact, on Facebook, the one on the left said, look at those two good-looking bookends. You see my brother and I, Matt, right there. And then one other set of brothers, Jason and Chris. We took that picture, and then something cool happened later that night. The, the guy on the right, Bobby, I'll, I'll share with you what he texted to all six of us. He said, we are six, I'm starting this thread for us to all keep in touch. Although Mawmaw's passing brought us together, I want us to seek a fellowship amongst us anytime. And this week, that fellowship started to play out a little bit. One of those cousins who's been through a lot called me. He, he lost his dad early in life and has been through some other things. And, and he was talking about the funeral and our time together there. And he said, I don't have a home church. I don't have a home pastor, but I'll listen to my cousin. He said, would you please send some of your messages from your church? In fact, send me the whole YouTube channel. And I thought, thank God for Bobby. Thank God for Bobby saying, guys, let's not let this be a picture and done. Let's stay connected because it's opening ongoing doors to build relationships and spread the good news of Jesus in the family. Let's be Bobbies in our world. I think about a guy who was at the first service this morning named Daniel. Daniel lives in Pronghorn Ranch. He's probably 60 years old. I'm ballparking it. Hope I'm not wrong or in trouble. (laughs) But Daniel lives in Pronghorn, and he came across a a teenage boy, became aware of a boy that lived in Pronghorn with Duchesne's. You know what Duchesne's is? It's a type of muscular dystrophy. It starts at age two or three. Those kids, as they grow up, can have trouble jumping, running, even walking. Other symptoms, their calves can get large. They waddle as they walk, inward curve. Later on, the, the heart and the respiratory muscles become affected. We prayed for this boy in the neighborhood on Wednesday because Daniel said he he saw him and he said, Boy, well, there's a lot of things that guy can't do, but there's something I can do with him that maybe he'd like to learn. And he invited that boy, talked to his mom, and said, Would he like to learn how to play chess? And he brought a picture to the prayer group on Wednesday night of them playing chess together. Now, I know Daniel's like the rest of us. He's busy. Got things going on, but but he looked beyond all that for a moment and said, There's somebody that could use. A connection and I think about that I think about this call from Timothy to care about the welfare of others the call from Epaphroditus to connect with others and I want to ask a question when you think of your Christian service would you describe it as filled with joy the idea of serving God or is it something else that you feel when I when I ask about that I know there's a cost. I also know it's biblical to, to make sure there are seasons of rest in our lives. We are made for rest. That is clear in Scripture. Jesus himself got away. But I also know that when all we do is rest as believers, you know what happens? We get restless because we know deep down inside we're, we're called to more. So how do, how do I embrace this call with joy, not fear, or, oh no, was such walking out of here carrying this load of guilt because of Timothy and Epaphroditus. No, how do we walk out of here embracing this with joy? <laughs> I like what Stuart Briscoe said. "Real service requires the servant to be personally poured out to God as a sacrifice. This runs contrary to our own selfishness, but is the basis of delight in serving Christ. If service is done with any degree of reticence or half-heartedness, it will be a chore instead of a joy. I read that and I think, wow, maybe the answer isn't protecting ourselves more, but surrendering more, saying, God, today, Open my eyes. Guide my steps to the opportunities, the good works you have for me. As we prepare to close, I, I know what it is that motivated these two guys. We started there in chapter 2. It was Christ himself, right? Philippians 2.8. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. I think these two guys never got over that. I think of what Christ did, and I think of a proverb I read this week. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's lofty pride will bring him low, but a lowly spirit will take hold of glory. Did not Christ, the Son of God, live that out? He's in glory now. After his humiliation, there was the exaltation. And I think in order for us to serve with joy, to to connect with joy and care for the welfare of others with joy, sometimes we need to go back and remember how lost we were apart from Christ before he came. Think of the lengths he came to seek your welfare and mine. Think of the lengths he came to connect with you and I. And that gospel, that good news shows up in sometimes surprising places. Twenty years ago, there was a band with a deep-throated singer that was all the rage. Anybody remember rock band? Creed. Creed, remember? Higher. Yeah, arms wide open. Am I dating myself, Nick? Maybe a little bit. Okay. Okay. I'm telling you, just a couple months ago, I was listening to one of their songs, My Own Prison, and I found the gospel in there. I want you to just take a moment and listen. It's a song about the prison of our sin. And if you're here today and you say, I'm still in that prison, listen, the hope of the cross is for you. Jesus died for your sin and rose again. Be your Savior and Lord and give you life eternal. I invite you to that. Trust in him. But if you're a believer, I want to go back to that place and remember the lengths he came to seek your welfare and mine in the prison of our sin and to connect with us. And as we thank him for that, to ask two questions of him. Say, Lord, thank you for seeking my welfare. Who in my sphere of influence would you have me go out and seek their welfare today? What needs am I aware of? Okay? And then second, who would you have me reconnect with this week. Check it out.
1: Quarters in session A verdict is in No appeal on the docket today Just my own sin The wall's cold i to free me from my burden and green.
0: this morning think about the lion of Judah roaring on that cross it is finished the lengths he came to seek welfare seems too light a word word, to seek, seek our salvation to spare us from eternal punishment in hell thank you to connect with lost sinners father thank you for sending him We claim your promise for believers in the room today that he is now risen on high and sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, that the risen Christ himself dwells within. And I pray that we would take up this torch that's been passed to us from Timothy and Epaphroditus and go out this morning seeking you every morning. Lord, who is it that you want me to love on today to seek their welfare, to share the gospel with them, to show the gospel to them, where they're broken or distanced relationships that you're calling me to reconnect in the name of Christ. Please go before us, lead the way, go behind us, help us to surrender. Not to walk out of here carrying a load of guilt, like what do I got to do now? But excitement, joy about, Lord, what will you do if we say yes, if we surrender and allow you to work freely through us today? this week and throughout our lives. Even as we take our offering this morning, may it come from those kind of surrendered hearts. Say we love you, we worship you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.